0: Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're just visiting with us this morning, we're we're glad that you're here. I wanted to extend a welcome to you too. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning. We're in a series uh, in the first half of the book of Mark. This morning we're in Mark chapter 3, if you'd like to be turning there. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, um, you'll find that on page 838 of that Bible. This semester, as we look at this first half of Mark, we're talking about the fact that Mark and Mark portrays for us Jesus, the King, the King who has come. He is our King, and we've week in and week out as we go through Mark, we're, we're seeing different aspects of what that means and what that means for us that He's our King. We've talked in the past few weeks about the the, the graciousness of our King. Uh, We we looked last week at the fact that Jesus, our King, comes like new wine. He is something different and new, and we have to be ready for Him on His own terms. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the fact that this King who comes brings a new community as well. So let me pray for us, and then we'll we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning and to Your Word and ask uh, that by Your Spirit that You would speak to us, that You'd surprise us that you would open our eyes and open our, hear- our ears, that we might hear you, our King, because we need a word from you. So we look to you with whatever faith that we have. Meet us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll spend this week and next week in chapter 3. Uh, today, we're going to look at verses 13 through 19, and then we'll skip down and read verses 31 through 35. Beginning in verse 13, and Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Verse 31, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was gathering around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God he is my mother. He is my brother and my sister and my mother. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the, the word of our Lord stands forever. So we turn to it this morning. And let, as we jump into this let, let me ask this question. Where where do you where maybe it's in the past where have you where has it been? Where where do you feel most free? Most able to put your guard down? Most able to be yourself, most able to be at rest. And, you know, maybe you're not even sure how to answer that question. Or maybe you've been scared to. Maybe you feel like you've never felt that way. Maybe it hasn't been since you were a kid. Or <clears throat> maybe like me, there are times right around 5 p.m. when I'm standing in the middle of my kitchen and there is chaos everywhere. And I gaze off into the distance and I can see that beautiful desert isle. And I can hear the music and see the so I have moments I snap back out of it after that. maybe you have moments like that, but where do you see this place in life of peace and rest and ability to be yourself, even if it 's the dreaming of the desert island sooner or later, we have to come back to the fact that that place must include people, and maybe a better way to ask this question would be who are the people with whom you feel that free? because you see we were designed to actually be in in communion with each other to be in community with each other that's at the heart of the biblical vision of what it means for us to live before god and it's something we see running right through the bible and it's something that we see right here as we see jesus the king who steps onto the scene and calls us not only to himself but also to a new community that is built around him that's built around the person of jesus this new community of the king. We're going to look at two things about it. First, that it's called by Jesus. And secondly, that it's centered on Jesus. Called by Jesus and centered on Jesus. And then we're going to look at some of the implications of that. For us, as just a local church community. So first, called by Jesus. Look again with me, verses 13 and 14. Jesus went up to the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Okay, this happens very subtly, but we can't miss the importance of what he does. Jesus calls people to himself. He takes initiative to not simply have a ministry to masses or to people as individuals, but to call people together to form what we're going to see here is a, a new community. And Jesus is the one who puts this community together. Okay, this scene opens up with Jesus calling. And it's important for us to remember because whatever we might think about churches as individual churches or Christian community to our own experiences in the past, we've got to start here. This was Jesus' idea. He started it. And he begins by calling these twelve uh, to him. And it says here that, that he appointed twelve. He uses, uh, uses the word here in our translation, appointed twice. Um, he appointed twelve, and then, uh, and then, verse sixteen again says he appointed the twelve. Kind of a, a, a little bland in our English translation. In, if you were to go back in, in the Greek here, the word is actually to create, to fashion, to make. Now that's a it's a pretty common Greek word, but not not in a context like this. You you would expect him to say something like, as our translators were struggling for, to to appoint, to call, to group together. You know, to get them together, but instead it says that He he created the twelve. It's the same word that you find if you were to read the Greek version of the Old Testament. You go back to Genesis 1-1 and hear that God created the heavens and the earth. You see, Jesus is doing something special here. He is creating a new community and it begins with these twelve people. He's making something new. Now, if you were uh, one of jesus disciples or a Jew in that era you, you would have you would have heard several resonances of this when when you hear about this number twelve because you would have thought of god 's people in all its twelve tribes, the sons of Jacob that make up the people of God, and you would have thought. Also of those 12 tribes as they were assembled at the foot of Mount Sinai when they had been brought out of slavery in Egypt and they were in the process of being liberated to be God's people in their own land. And God calls Moses up to himself on the mountain to give him the law, this covenant of relationship with his people that he's going to bring down to his fellow Israelites, the 12 tribes, this, this covenant that bonds them to their God. You would have been thinking of all of that when you see that Jesus went up to a mountain, and he called these twelve to himself. See, what he is doing is he is making a new people for himself. No longer simply just the twelve tribes of Israel. He's putting together these twelve in a highly symbolic way. He's saying this is the new community of God's people. This is the new people that we are being invited into. And nobody in Jesus' day would have missed the symbolic importance and statement of that. See what we really see here is we see the founding of the New Testament church. It doesn't look very dramatic here. It begins with Jesus saying, "You twelve, come here." But these uh, are set aside to be disciples and uh, uses the word here, apostles, that they carry a very special uh, uh, mission as they represent Jesus and as they are very integral in the founding of uh, the early church. So in some ways they are very special, but in other ways they're very much just like us in this way. They were leaders of the church. But where do leaders, what do they do? Well, they lead people so that we can go where they're going, right? Our leaders go ahead of us. And in that way, these men represent the church as a whole. we're going to see in a minute how God's call on them and Jesus' call on them is, in fact, the call for all of us as God's church. Uh, We see him founding this community of God's people, the church. And right here, we just get a picture of how important the church is to Jesus, because he's starting it here and there's this remarkable verse in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. We're so often when we think about what does it mean to follow Jesus, our first instinct as Americans and certainly as western westerners is to think in very individualistic terms. It is all about me and Jesus. But here we see Jesus forming his church. And and here's this remarkable verse. Let me read it to you from Ephesians. Paul's speaking about the relationship of husbands and wives, and he unfolds how it's really a picture of God's relationship with his people, like a husband married to his wife. Here's what he says in 525. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you hear that? He's saying just like Christ loved the church and died for her, died for the church died for his people because the church god's new community matters to god so it's called by jesus now this this idea of community that jesus is unfolding here it's an old idea And it's one that's not um, unfamiliar to us. We're made for community. And that's a theme that runs right from the beginning of the Bible and all the way through. If you think back to creation and God creating everything in six days and saying that it's good and he creates Adam. And then in chapter 2 you hear him say this, it is not good for man to be alone. And it is not as if God created everything and created this one guy, Adam, and then thought, you know, there is just a hole in creation. I wish I could put my finger on what exactly it is. What's he doing? He's illustrating in that context for Adam and for us that we were made for community. This, what he goes on to do has huge implications for marriage. He creates Eve. It gives him a wife, but it has huge uh, implications for community as well. He's starting the human race here because we are not meant to live in isolation. We were meant to live in community. And just think how easy it would be for God to say, look, Adam, I've given you all of creation and I've given you myself. Is that not enough? But you see, God made him with a a, a further need that we would need other people. God in his infinite humility, making us that we might be drawn together in community. It's hardwired into who we are. And we see it in other places in the Bible too. Think back about Abraham, this man who's called out of this pagan background, and, G- and God comes to him and says, I'm taking you to a new land, and Abraham, I'm going to give you sons and daughters and descendants like the stars of the sky, like the sands of the seashore. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and you will be a blessing to all nations of the earth. You see, he starts with this one man, but he's building a people. It runs right through the Bible. This community is a present reality for us as well. And for many of us, it's a present struggle, too. Think about this. Um, let's say you're in middle school right now or in, or in high school. How many different defined groups of people are there in your school? And don't they all have a name? You could come walk with you through your school. Oh, yeah, that's the so-and-so group. And that's these guys. And we tend to peg each other into those things don't do they mostly all have a label and further let me ask you this what group are you trying to get into and why what's it going to give you when you attain that when you get into that group you want to be in so badly it feels good why because we long for community we long for connection with other people our students are mostly gone this week on fall break and i, I remember though years ago when i when i first came to william and mary's campus minister and and Going into the act, the student activity fair that happens right at the beginning of the year for all the freshmen to come to, and I remember from my own small college experience, we had a we had a activity fair, and it was it was out on this little brick uh, courtyard outside one of our one of our student union buildings, and it was smaller than the size of this room, and all six groups were there, you know. But I went into the gym at William and Mary, and there were tables everywhere. So I come in with this little stuff for RUF Reform University Fellowship, going to set up my little table, and everywhere there's groups for every conceivable thing and it seems like anytime two William and Mary students get together and meet each other they form their own group and they don't really want that many more people to be a part of it and at least half of them involve dressing up in weird period clothes somehow like I, so it was a totally foreign world to me but you come into William and Mary as a freshman and you see this vast array of all these displays and you think who are the people that I'm going to know What group is going to be my group? Where am I going to find my place? And I guarantee you, freshmen come to the activity fair. Why? Because they're hungry for community, for a place to fit. I've noticed as I've talked to many of you that are military families, and you tell me about what it's like to uh, pick up and move every few years on new assignments and to new bases. And I've been struck by how quickly it seems most military families uh, connect with other people on base and other people in their new community. They know that if they wait around for the normal amount of time to connect and get to know people, they'll already be on to their next assignment. Instead, they have to jump in with both feet right away because they know they'll wither up and die without a sense of community. You know, maybe you uh, maybe you're in Williamsburg because you retired here. You know, maybe you picked up a magazine and saw something about Williamsburg, and you heard uh, about what a great place it is. If you read the ad, and that ad did not talk to you about the beauty of retirement buildings or retirement centers, instead it talked to you about retirement communities, because at every stage in our life, we know that we have to connect with other people. Uh, this early this past year, there was an article in the New Yorker by a, a guy named Dr. Atul Gawande, and uh, he wrote an article on the effects of solitary confinement on uh, prisoners, people that are, that are put away in long-term solitary confinement. I, I heard an uh, excerpt of, of this on, on NPR, and he, here's what he said as he describes what happens in solitary confinement. In the beginning, you're just lonely. Then after a couple of months, you begin to simply slow down. You lose your ability to initiate behavior. To organize yourself around any kind of purpose, you can begin to hallucinate. You start pacing back and forth for hours at a time. Then your thinking pattern begins to break down. There's irrational anger, obsessing on single points, and what ultimately can develop is outright psychosis. Because we weren't meant to live alone. At the same time, and we feel that in our bones, whether we are experiencing it presently or not, but at the same time, are we kind of afraid of community as well and what that might imply for us or what that might call us to? What if people around me, what if they really knew me, I mean, really knew me, not just the stuff I try to show them and not just what our house is like when people are visiting and guests, but what it's really like and what's really going on in life. You know, what if I what if I try to connect or share something about my life, try to be honest and everybody ends up running literally or metaphorically from you? What do you share with others? And are you in a place where you feel that you're free to do it? Maybe you have trouble because you have this tendency and this desire to want to look good and you're afraid if, if people again, if people knew what you're really like, they would they would walk away. Or, or maybe maybe you go to the other extreme because of that kind of fear. and in, in for you, you just you wear everything on your sleeve. So that everybody can know the junk right up front and go ahead and run from you now and you don't have to experience the pain later. Might as well chase them away from the front end. You know, maybe you're involved in a home group here in our church, a smaller community of people. What, what do you ask people to pray for for you? Are you always asking maybe for prayer for someone else? Or are, do all your prayers have to do with um, your health, as important as that is, and as legitimate as that is, as a prayer request? Are you only asking, in other words, maybe for what, for you, are safe requests? Things that don't open the door too much into the basement of what's really going on in your life. But you see, Jesus was about the business of creating and calling into being a community. But a specific kind of community, and this is the second point, is a community that is centered on Jesus, that He stands at the middle of it. That the thing that the community has in common is Jesus. That the glue that holds them together is Jesus and his call on their lives. And if you look at this list of men who were called to this initial expression of this community, Jesus was the only hope for them because they were not the all stars. Some of these men on this list, we, we, we don't see their name anywhere else in the New Testament. And we can only assume that God did what he plan to do here and used them in ways, but they're anonymous to us. Others of them uh, we see fairly frequently in the pages of the New Testament, one of which, and he heads the list in every list of the disciples, is the Apostle Peter. And Jesus calls him to be a part of this community, this Peter who would deny Jesus three times on the night that he was betrayed. This Jesus who would run away from his Lord and Savior. This Jesus who would have to be reinstated into this fellowship when Jesus was raised from the dead and he puts his arm back around Peter and says, I'm not done with you. And this Peter who later gets rebuked by Paul in the book of Acts well after the Holy Spirit came and we would think Peter would have gotten his act together because again, a person struggling to follow Jesus consistently and well. He wasn't an all-star. You know, we look at here at James and John. It says they're the, th- the sons of thunder. And we don't know what that means. It's not explained anywhere. But maybe you get a glimpse of that in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus is traveling through the countryside with his disciples. They're near a Samaritan village and they send a messenger there to prepare a place for Jesus to come into the city. And the city rejects him. They don't want him to be there. And so James and John turn to Jesus and they say, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to swallow them up? Jesus rebukes them because they don't get it. The sons of thunder. And this list even includes uh, Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus, the one who would seek to undermine and undo what is happening here as God is building his people. And ironically, it's his very act of betrayal that God uses as a part of sending Jesus to the cross, that he might die, that we might be redeemed, that this community might live and live forever. And it does. Some of you will have read a business book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And he talks about, as he did a long-range study of, of a lot of different companies, about what, what took good companies into being great companies. And he talks about the characteristics of this. And one of the things he talked about in, in the leadership and the personnel in the company is he talks about the principle of getting the right people on the bus, that you have to have the right people working for you. You have to choose them well. And Jesus did not get the right people on the bus. And it's not because he wasn't a good leader, but it was in order maybe that those people would know that the point is not that he's got the right people on the bus, but we have the right people, the right person driving the bus. That we have the right one who is steering this community. These, these men could never get away from the fact that the only thing holding them together and propelling them forward and giving them success in their mission was Jesus. He was the one. This community is centered on Jesus. Look at what he says he is doing with and for them. He calls them and he says, uh, for this reason, verse 14, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. First, he says he's calling them to be with him. That is not a means to an end. That is Jesus's end game for them. You're going to come be with me. Period. That That's not going to stop. You know, when in Jesus' day, other people known as rabbis, just the great teachers, people would flock to these rabbis and want to follow them so that they could learn what the rabbi had to give them and so they could then go be a rabbi themselves and gain disciples of their own. And maybe, who knows, one day even become more famous and more well-known than the rabbi who trained them. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to come and be with me with me that, that doesn't end. There is no, we're training you now and sending you out and you leave me behind. There is no leaving our Savior. We are bound to Him. And for us as followers of Jesus, this is His call on us too. That we would be bound to Him as well. That we are called to be with Him. And this being with Him was a radical call for them. Look at, again, down to verses 31 through 35. What happens there? Jesus' family gets wind of what's been happening in Jesus' ministry, and they think, he's, they think he's just lost it. And so they come to quietly get him and bring Jesus home where he won't cause any more trouble. So they come to the house where he's with his disciples teaching him, and they knock on the door, and the word spreads through the crowd. You know, your, your mother and your, and your brothers are outside waiting, and they're expecting Jesus to get up and go uh, see, as a good, dutiful son would do, go see his mother and his brothers. And instead, he looks around, he says, no, 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 look around. He who does my father's will, he who is here with me, he he is my mother and my brother and my sister. He looks around, he says, no, 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 this is my new family. When he says, come be with me, he is inviting us into a new community that is a new Family then when we come together as followers of Jesus even in a in a local church like this as we represent Christ's body here in Williamsburg as we share in connection and fellowship together it is to be like that for us it is to be a new family now for many of us that doesn't really sound all that radical because maybe our parents and our families of origin are hundreds of miles away and we've moved three times and it's It's a long time in our past, and we're used to only seeing them twice a year anyway. But you see, in Jesus' day, people didn't move that far away from their families, and they had family obligations that were so much stronger and so much more a part of the social fabric than ours. When when Jesus' followers would have seen this, they would have been scandalized. There's something that goes deeper than family? Jesus says, yes, being connected to me and being connected to my people. All of these things, when it talks, when we see Jesus and hear Him talking about being with us and us being with Him, we're very much used to this idea that that be that following Christ is about me and Jesus. Uh, it's about my own personal devotional life with God. It's all about what He did on the cross to save me from my sins. Okay, and He did. But you see, everything in the Bible has a community focus first. When he talks about being with me so that you might be with me, uh, maybe maybe one of you will think of an exception. You can tell me after the service. But I cannot think of a single time in the entire, uh, in, in anywhere in the Gospels, that Jesus spent one-on-one time with any of his disciples. It never happens one-on-one. Sometimes it's three on one. Sometimes it's Peter, James, and John. The closest I could get was John 21 at, after Peter, again, has betrayed Jesus. Jesus, when he reinstates Peter, you get the impression that they're walking alongside the, the lake. And he, Peter looks back over his shoulder and says, what about him? Pointing back at John. So, okay, so m- maybe they were having a chat by themselves there. But that's it. That's it. All the rest of this happens for us as we follow Jesus together. It is a community endeavor. When we think about ourselves and our place in the world, we think of ourselves as individuals first, and then our community and family obligations second. But people in Jesus' world would have thought, first, I belong to a community, and that has implications for me as an individual. See, Jesus came to save the church. He came to build a body of people following Him, and that has glorious and beautiful implications for us as individuals as we are individually known and loved by our God. But it comes all in the context of God loving His people and calling us to follow Him as a people. There is no solo Christianity. So he says, Come and calls them to two things, to be with him. But then, then it says, Not only be with him, but go with him. If you've noticed, every time we turn around in the book of Mark, we're never very far away from Jesus' call to us to mission, to service of him, to going out into the world. And that's exactly what he does here when he says, that he Set them aside so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He sends them out in the towns around that they might bring the good news of Jesus and the healing and the power of Jesus to the world around them. Now, we're, we're going to talk uh, in future weeks about uh, what he talks about, about casting out demons. It happens in several places in the book of Mark, and it's a main theme for Mark, that Jesus has power over everything, including the powers of darkness. We'll talk more about that. But simply here, I think one way to sum it up for us is that Jesus sends his people out to be a part of his work of healing the world. He sends them out to preach. sends them out to heal. He sends them out to put things right. See, when Jesus calls these people, and when He calls us His people, He says that you might be with me and that you might be a part of the work that I am doing in the world. Come be with me and go with me as I go and do this. Alright, let me just try to list a few implications for us. We've got a community that's called by Jesus and one that's centered on Jesus. That's what Mark is showing us here. What would that look like for us? How would that look embodied for us as a local congregation, a local church? Well, I think the implication for us is really that the church is to be our place of deepest community. It's the place that, it's the group of people that God has put together to be our closest connections. Other followers of Jesus. That's what he calls us to. That we would really be connected here to these real, very normal, odd people in pew with us he calls us to that here's some things that maybe would mark a a church and us as a church looking like this one this kind of community would be a safe community one where it is safe to be known in a community where it's where it's safe to struggle as well to struggle with the hard edges of our lives to struggle with our ongoing war against sin and even safe to struggle and work through our own often unspoken questions and doubts. Remember these guys, these 12 guys who shouldn't have been on the bus? One of them was Thomas, known forever in church history as Doubting Thomas. One of the 12, this man who's seen the resurrected Jesus said, Nope, I don't believe it. He's one of these There's a place for that, too, and in our places of struggle and doubt in life, are we going to be a safe community where we can walk together through that? It's called to be a diverse community. You see people in this list from very different temperaments and in some ways very different backgrounds. Uh, The church is called to be diverse. At the very least, that means that a a local church ought to reflect the diversity of its community. And we've got a ways to go on that. We need to trust God to lead us there, and we need to have our eyes open to that. Uh, One very interesting kind of diversity that these men had was political diversity, which kind of struck me, because if you look at two of these men here, on the one hand, you've got Matthew uh, called earlier in in the book of Mark, Levi, the tax collector, okay? Okay. Matthew, the tax collector, he was the one who sold out to Rome. He's the one who was collaborating with the enemy. He was the one who was rejecting the religion and the culture that he grew up in. And then you've got somebody in this list towards the end named Simon the Canaanite. That's, that's not a place name. It doesn't mean Simon the Canaanite. It, it, it's an Aramaic form of uh, the word as it's, as it's translated in another list of the disciples in in the uh, Gospels where he is identified as Simon the Zealot. Now, it's possible that that just means he was somebody who's especially zealous for God's law and for God's honor. But it also was the designation of a, of a political group in Israel as well, the Zealots, who had given themselves to the overthrow of Rome. So, on the one hand, you've got this incredible uh, political conservative. On the other hand, this incredibly liberal political tax collector, both in the same church, both in the same group of 12. You see, he is calling people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of connections into a new community where they're defined now, first and foremost, by their relationship to Jesus. Safe community, diverse community. It's an intimate community. It's like family. It is family. For some of us, maybe the family that we never had. Your family are the people by and large, who know you, at least for one window of your life, the very best. And they are the people to whom you have obligations that don't disappear when you move away. As a church family, is that our experience here that this is a place where we're really known, and we're where we really, in a very healthy and right way, feel that sense of obligation to each other? We're family. We're connected. And so we're going to live that way. One of the most common ways that Christians refer to each other in the New Testament is by the terms brother and sister, members of the same family. Who here has open access to your life? Who here knows what's really going on? Who here has your permission to come and ask about it and come after you? And who here... Are you sharing life in such a way that you can speak into their lives as well? Because we are all in need of encouragement and sometimes of rebuke and always a pointing back to Jesus. Safe community, diverse, intimate, also a focused community. By that, I just mean this, that our eyes are focused on Jesus, who really is the center of the community. What Grace Covenant, what is that church about? They're about Jesus. They look to Him. They really want to build their lives around Him. They really want to give their lives to serving Him, to knowing what He's about, and therefore going where He goes, wherever that might be. A focused community. And then finally, that we would be a community of tangible hope. That we are a community because we know Jesus. We have hope. A hope that girds us up. A hope that cannot be destroyed or shaken away. We are in the hands of our God. And so we can have hope. In every moment of our lives, and we can have hope that we bring to the world around us. Not simply just kind of this wishful world of one day, wouldn't it be nice if everything turned out just right? But the hope of we have a risen Savior, even now, seated, seated at the right hand of the Father, in power. Our God is reigning and for us, and He holds us in His hands. We can be a people of hope in the middle of a very dark and hopeless world. We get a picture here of a community that's called by Jesus and centered on him. that would have these kind of characteristics. May we be that more. That is what Jesus is calling us to. Let's pray. Father, we do pray uh, that you would meet us not simply as individuals, but as a community, your people. Would you knit us together? Would we be a place that truly is safe and diverse and intimate and focused and one that knows hope and offers it to the world around us? For You are our hope, and it's to You that we look. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.